you know it's like i've got mates for example when they go to the pub will only pay cash because if they do tap and go with their credit cards i'll rack up a 200 dollars bill with that whole process of frictionless payment means it's hard to monitor how much you're actually spending and that's not just limited to gaming that's kind of through all society now Welcome back to Pocket Money, guys. I'm Sally. And I'm Mark. We all know that there's no such thing as a free lunch, right? But how do free games make money then? (laughs) Yeah, that's exactly right. I mean, Candy Crush, Pokemon Go, uh, Cat Condo, Gun Bros. (laughs) That's you. Fortnite, Clash of Clans. It's free to download and start playing them. But in some cases, these make millions, or even in the case of Pokemon Go, over a billion dollars. But how? (laughs) Well, the mobile gaming for just this year is forecast to make more than $63 billion. And that's a lot more than console and PC gaming, which, of course, you have to pay to to start playing, right? Like, you have to actually buy the games. Yeah. And of that, in-app purchases make up around 43% of all of the profits they're getting. Yeah. So, today on Pocket Money, we're going to be diving into the world of freemium games. We're going to be cracking open our phones, we're going to be downloading <laughs> the game, buying some in-game currency, seeing how this new business model fits in with psychology, addiction, and parenting. Because as we know, a lot of children are playing these mm-hmm. games and that raises new obstacles that I suppose parents might not have thought about in the past. Yeah, like how is this, I guess, maybe shaping money habits with young people and how do you help your kids like have a good time, like play a game that they enjoy, but also make sure they're not wasting all of either their pocket money, uh, plug, <laughs> or the parent's credit card that's conveniently linked to the account. To chat all about it today, we actually have Finder's resident gaming expert, Chris Stead. Chris has been an Australian gaming journalist for more than 23 years. He's the former editor of Game Informer, Game Pro, Game Player, and uh, more than 10 other publications. So I think we're in good company here. Welcome, Chris. Hey, guys. Great to be here. We're really excited to chat to you today because we've had our eyes opened, I suppose, in the last couple uh, weeks researching this. Freemium Games is just, it's crazy. It's a phenomenon. Yeah. So, like, maybe we can start from the top and get, like, a, a bit of an introduction as to what these are and how they work. When mobile games came along, say, when the iPhone started, it came out around 2008, that type of time. People were used to playing like a dollar or two dollars for something, whereas the games that we were buying in shops for were worth anywhere up to a hundred dollars at the time. So there was a mismatch there on what the customers were used to paying on mobile versus what games companies were used to selling games for. So we started to see developers trying to get games out for about two dollars, three dollars, that type of price range, but they just couldn't really fund businesses out of it. So we started to see this free game strategy coming where they would actually give you the game for free just to get a heap of momentum, get things charting well, get a lot of install base in there, which means like people playing the games uh, and then try and work out other ways of monetizing that so that they can actually make an income and, and, and run a business. Yeah. Can you talk us through like some of the strategies of how these freemium games actually make money? Because there's quite a few methods, right? 
Yeah, well, I mean, it's an absolute science. And the guys behind it are very, very smart. And a lot of them don't come out of the gaming space. They come out of the business sector and they've worked on things like the reward systems and those types of kind of more finance-based things. And they apply some of that technology to your classic gamification system. So the things that we've seen in RPGs for years to encourage people to get lost in games and dive into games. It's games like World of Warcraft and things, which we've had, I guess you could say, addiction issues too in the past. And then kind of combine the two. In the early days, they tried it was kind of traditional. So they'd do things like advertising in the game. So there'd be uh, display ads within the gaming experience. And that's how they'd make money. And it was very obvious how that kind of system worked. And we all understood it. And then they started to get more smart, more savvy with it. Started layering in things like uh, multiple economies within the game. And then tailoring the gameplay experience and how you got into it. So by kind of like a bait and switch style thing where they'll get you in there with something that's really hook and fun and addictive and free and you play for a little while and then you kind of go, oh, I'm really into this. And you hit some sort of a barrier that stops you from progressing further into the game, some sort of paywall. Now that could just be a delay tactic, like a timer. So if he goes, oh, okay, well, if you hit this thing, you can't use this next thing until you wait an hour. And you're sitting there on a bus and you're really into it and you're playing. You go, oh, I'm not going to wait now. And it says, well, just give us a buck. You can just play it now. And it was very crude at first, super crude. And then it just started evolving and they became smarter about it. And some of the games we're seeing today, the best ones, the ones that make a lot of money, you don't really realise that you're actually at that paywall. It just feels like an organic extension and people get tricked into paying it or psychologically tricked into feeling like they should pay. And then it becomes a debate on whether or not there's a right or wrong there or, or not. Yeah, that's interesting. And a lot of these games use fantasy currency, right? So, you know, you might be using X number of gems or something to buy something in the game. And then it has an odd exchange rate with the dollars that you have linked to the account. Yeah, so the idea there is to bury the actual cost of what you're buying behind so many different other currencies that the conversion rates you've got to do in your head and the mass of it is so complex that you don't get there. Or you don't actually realise, you go, oh, I just paid 30 whatevers, you know, 30 gems, and you're trying to go, okay, now 30 gems is worth this many carrots and that many carrots is worth how much money? And you're trying to make that connection. This started before free-to-play freemium models came in. The original Xbox Live, for example, they had Xbox dollars and they weren't attributed one-to-one with any sort of legal tender. So I had to buy a thousand of these things and then the game would cost 800 and you go, okay, so I spent 800, what's that worth? And you're trying to work it out in your head. Then you're left with 200 you don't know what to do with. Even music festivals do it. I'd say like, okay, you've got to buy 10 coupons and the beer's worth eight coupons. And so you're stuck with two coupons that you can't do anything with. And you go buy another 10 coupons and you got 12. And so try and bury it behind it. You don't really realise what you're buying. And that's kind of like a really classic strategy that's been around for years to try and hide what you're paying so that, you're convinced to make multiple payments uh, in a short period of time before you've actually ever seen a uh, bank statement to know what you've actually paid. And then you get your bank statement and you go, holy hell, that added up. That seems like it's hard for adults to work out, let alone children. Do you think that that kind of practice is, I don't want to say like evil, but but, you know, at least like unsavory, like business practice, especially when kids come into it? It's not so much that. It's It's hard to educate children about how this process works. So they're far easier to be um, manipulated by it or to not understand what they've got themselves into. You understand basically what they're trying to do. They're trying to trick you. Or they're trying to at least lull, lull your sense of, oh, no, what's, what, where's my cash, down so they might be able to get a few extra dollars out of you. So we're making a somewhat educated decision to do that. Kids obviously cannot make that decision. When you compound that by the 
I guess, frictionless payment system in the world that we live in now where the card's already there, it's just a button press, it's done, you paid for it, you don't know what you paid for it for a month until you look at your statement. If you look at your statement, that was where things started getting dangerous. You know, it's like I've got mates, for example, when they go to the pub, will only pay cash because if they do tap and go with their credit cards, I'll rack up a $200 bill. You know, because you forget within that whole process of, I guess, frictionless payment means it's mm. hard to monitor how much you're actually spending. And that's not just limited to gaming. That's kind of through all, all of society now. It doesn't seem like it's real money, I suppose. It's that just that one step removed from actual cash. Yeah, I mean, look at e-tolls. You go through the e-toll and you're like, isn't that 10 cents more than last time? And you kind of drive past and you don't really know because it's just just happens. What do you think about how some of these games are maybe influencing the way that kids are developing money habits? I've got three children and you've got to kind of impart a sense of value and understanding of what value is. And that value might be money, but it also might be time or it might be psychological investment. Like what's the value of that and what's that worth to you? And obviously as an adult, you can go, well, you know what? I did just drop $100 in this game. I didn't mean to, but I did get 20 hours of entertainment out of it. So you can find that value in it. For children, it becomes a bit challenging to give them an understanding of what the value is, their time investment, their money investment, what's it actually worth. It's not actually a physical thing or or something that you can sell or trade later on like you might be able to trade your pokemon cards or your football cards you can't do that with these things and it becomes an education of value with children i think that's a challenge that's in general in life but it's just intensified by the ease of access of these products the ease of payment on these products and also the touch screens which are awfully intuitive so you don't have to be a wizard on a joystick with two analog sticks and 17 buttons you just have to be able to drag and drop you know or press it and tap something you know how much of this can be solved by parents sort of learning about these systems and how they work because they are fairly new and then just sitting down with their children and saying, you know, $10 might buy you this in the game, but it'll also buy you this in the real world. And if you save an extra $10, it'll buy you this in the real world. And that is a really good point about how much the role of education comes into it from the parent. The problem, I guess, that we face as a general community is that when it comes to technology, in a lot of cases, the kids leading the parents, even though I've spent more than half my life in this industry working on it and writing about it and I've got all the tech in the world at the house my sister who is 14 years younger than me is still just innately ahead on a lot of things just because she lives in that environment a lot more closely because she's growing up in it you know like my children come home they talk about Fortnite, they talk about Pokemon they talk about all these things and know all about it and I never spoke to them about it and I'm in the industry so for a parent who's you know not into their tech at all or works in an industry which isn't tech reliant as it is in say publishing where we work in yeah it's a harder barrier to cross they're learning from the kids education point starts with the parent actually understanding it for sure but then you know they've got to actually know what their kids are doing and what those products actually do it's challenging for both parties what about purchases in these games you know like loot boxes where i think it's in fifa you can buy like a pack of cards and then you don't necessarily know which players you're going to get you might be able to pay a bit more to like lift your chances of getting like some really good players in the pack but you don't really know what you're buying so it's hard to be like okay well i'm buying this and this is how much value i can attribute to it because it's i guess kind of like gambling a little bit like you don't really know what you're getting yeah the kind of freemium model we were talking about before that started in the mobile space has actually kind of evolved into the premium space. Premium games being games that have an upfront cost, usually significant, usually somewhere between $80 and $100 for the bigger console games. They created this term called games as a service where they looked at the success that was going on in the mobile scene and they went, well, how can we apply that to our games that are costing two or $300 million to make, you know? 
So they come up with this idea of having this extending a game beyond just the point of sale. So previously in the old school, you'd go up, you'd spend your $100, you'd get your game, you'd play your game, that's it. That's the only money that ever changed hands. Then they start introducing DLC and microtransactions where you can buy things like extra levels or buy things like, you know, cool armor or something like that. And then a transition from that now to this broader games as a service thing where a game like, say, uh, a Destiny or a For Honor might come out and it might last for three or four years. And they just, it becomes a service where you buy, you're constantly buying into that. One of the strategies that kind of came out of that was loot boxes. It's very similar to back when we were kids and you'd go in, you'd buy a pack of football cards and you have the football cards and you go, oh, damn, I've got those three already, but these two I didn't have, so great. So then I go buy another one, see if I get some more ones. And you just kind of kept going back because it was random what you're going to get. Uh, but it took it to another level, loot boxes, because it's digital, it's not physical. It hasn't been made previously. And the control of that environment is the developer's. So if the developer decides to tinker with that in the background and use the data and the metrics that they're gathering from every single person using this game, like 10, 20, 30 million people you're playing this game, and then they can alter the loot box chance based on that individual user's preferences and stuff like that. So they might work out, for example, that you're the type of player who will likely buy two goes at a loot box, and if you don't get something good in those two goes, you'll give up. So they've worked that out. So they'll definitely give you something good on that second go because then you're more likely to go third and fourth and fifth. And so it's those types of really nefarious tactics that people started going, well, is this happening? Because nothing's transparent. It's all hidden in the back end of a closed system that's centralised within a developer and we can't see what's going on. And it sure seems like you guys are manipulating this and there's a bit of gambling going on. But the thing is, it's pulling in so much money. Like I think, I looked it up, I think Ultimate Card, which is it's kind of like their card, I guess you could call it like a card collecting game for FIFA, which is one of the biggest games in the world. That alone brought in $635 US million last year in the last game. And so that's a lot of money. People aren't going to give that up. It also encourages other developers to do it. So now I've got multiple developers who have created a loot box scenario and they're like, well, people are paying. So what's the problem? We're not going to stop doing this. And more and more people are going to keep doing it because they're making money out of it, they're making revenue. But the reality is it lures people into spending a lot of money on a game of chance where the odds of that chance are not preset, they're dynamic and can change on you. That's concerning the Australian government, it's concerning parents, it's concerning gamers, it's concerning a lot of people, which is why the word loot box has become such a big deal lately. In our childhoods, Pokemon cards were a big thing, right? So you would buy your pack of Pokemon cards and you would get however many, I think it was like 12, 11 mm-hmm. or 12 cards and you would always want your shiny Charizard. Mm-hmm. But you wouldn't necessarily get it. You would probably never get it, really. You'd get stuck with a Psyduck again. <laughs> or a Diglett, my 100th <laughs> Diglett. So how different are loot boxes? Obviously, there's the algorithm component and there's the lack of transparency. But, I mean, Pokemon cards didn't really give you a transparent number of your what, what your odds were, how many holographic cards were put into you know a set of cards so how much of a problem is this or is this just sort of an early reaction with the cards they're a physical thing that you hold and if you got something that you didn't like you could go trade it with a loot box scenario if you get something you don't like bad luck it's not an asset you can't do anything with it and there's a, there's a whole movement now that's starting to happen involving blockchain technology where they're trying to change that. They're trying to give the ownership back to the, the gamers to try and solve this problem. But that's the main difference. So you're throwing money at a wall, basically, but getting nothing in return. And then there's other parts to it as well. So like in the example of a Pokemon card game, it's very much a set experience for everyone. Whereas a lot of the loot box scenarios that we started to see, they were offering competitive advantage. You would actually be buying into these things, hoping to get 
a weapon that would give you a better chance of playing the game. And that's where things start getting really, really bad because all of a sudden you'd start playing a game and you'd start losing and you'd go, well, I'm losing because this guy's paying all this money on loot boxes. Now I have to pay loot boxes too, you know? And then when you tie that into all the back analysis that's going on of data and, and looking at the various parts of the algorithm in the background that's controlling these things, and you can start to see how people start getting concerned and the water gets muddied and people get, yeah, psychologically a little bit too deep into it and, and start racking up bills because you're still spending little bits of money. You're spending it a lot. I also had a question about in-app purchases. So research is tending to show that it's only actually a very small percentage of players that are making these in-app purchases and you know they refer to them as whales. Obviously, the whales are spending a lot of money, but I wonder how many kids are the whales or if these are just adults that are really obsessed with the game. Anyone that gets onto public transport anywhere still a year and a half later, I guarantee you can look over somewhere and still see someone deep into Pokemon Go. It's not so much the percentage of people. The debate is whether or not it's leading people who already have an addictive personality or a tendency towards going this way and making it really accessible and teaching potentially bad habits in terms of the value of money, how to monitor your spend, where you really should be investing, those types of things. Is it breeding bad habits and who's getting control of it? So what it may be doing is it may be taking people who are young and have a predilection to that type of behaviour and could be steered either way and then steering them into that 1.9% where they may not have been. Obviously, there's a hell of a lot of people who just play a game for free and have a good time, and that's the argument for why they should exist. I'd love to see more, more of those types of games have a option to buy. If you're really into a game, why can't you just say, okay, well, I want to buy the entire experience for 30 bucks, but never ask me for an in-app purchase again? Whose responsibility is this to like regulate this phenomenon? Because we have talked about that a lot of these tactics have been used before, whether it's, you know, in rewards programs or, you know, Pokemon cards. Is it time for the Australian government to step in and, and do something to regulate these games? Or is it like the gaming developers who should be held accountable or like the parents? Well, you know, it all comes down to transparency. You know, we're here talking about now and, and we've got articles on, on final.com.au that discuss it further about how the tactics used to monetize these games and you can research it, you can learn about it, but you don't open a game and it says, now what's going to happen is we're going to make it doubly hard for you to progress for every level that you get until we've got you paying. That's our tactic. That kind of transparency is really um, what needs to be put to the forefront how do you legislate that in a global environment? I don't know. You know, Pokemon Go is a classic example. When Pokemon Go launched here in Australia, the game incited an incredible amount of illegal activity. Nintendo and Niantic, or Niantic the developer, had done things like place meeting points for gamers in public parks, which is against the law. You've got to ask the councils for permission before you can even do that. And there was no way to turn it off. You know, because there's no phone number here in Australia, there's no representative here in Australia. It's Apple, other than turning off the telco's phone networks, there's nothing you can do about it. So legislating about it is hard. Most of the indie games aren't censored or there's no censorship in them. Uh, And those that are, it's all self-done anyway. So they self-report. And it just comes down to whether or not anyone complains. And back in the day when there was like four or five games coming out a month, then that was really maintainable. But now you've got hundreds and hundreds of games coming out a month. So it's not sustainable to censor these things. Ultimately, it's going to come down to the audience and what the audience decides they're going to invest their money in. And hopefully, we're starting to see a bit of a push from developers using blockchain technology to run this, which 
is important because blockchain allows for transparency. Blockchain says, hey, we're not just telling you that you have a one in a hundred chance that you will get this thing if you spend this money. We can actually prove it because it's publicly viewable on the blockchain, that there is one of these things. Uh, and we can show you who owns it or if it's not even owned yet. So shifting to that kind of model of transparency in the way that games are made and then the audience following that is, I think, probably the only solution. So do you see the Australian government stepping in in terms of classifications? I think there's definitely going to be some pressure for them to step in and do something about it. I personally think that the way forward is to make any game that involves any sort of loot boxes or outlay of cash in that kind of non-transparent kind to just be rated hard R and just say straight away, this is adult material. Yeah, that's a great point. And I suppose on the parental side of things, what can parents do right now to protect their kids from, I suppose, even outside of loot boxes and going more towards in-app purchases? How can they stop their kids from racking up these huge bills or buying things that they don't necessarily feel uh, you know, is a good use of their money. Pretty much all services now have pretty good parental controls. I doubt that even 10% of parents actually utilize them. On consoles and various devices, you can block things out just completely from working. You can set timers on, say, an Xbox where the, top, the Xbox just won't turn on between 8 and 9 in the morning or something. Or you can set these things up so that when your child is interacting with these environments, that you're available to see what's going on and, and have a chance of understanding it. Also, like I know with the latest iOS, it actually will spit out a report of how much the phone was used and what apps were being used. So that's just hard encoded into the iOS now. I'm not sure if Android does that. but That new iOS feature is very, very alarming. <laughs> I looked at it the other day and yeah, I definitely haven't been opening up Instagram as much as I used to. It's terrifying. <laughs> Too much gun bros? <laughs> Uh, you know, I'm more of a cat condo kind of gal. Right. Understandable. <laughs> so it's popped up a few times during our conversation, but we can't really talk about the freemium gaming phenomenon without going into Fortnite, right? Like it's the classic example that we see in every like article or current affair program about how these games are corrupting your children and ruining our economy. So let's talk about that. Look, Fortnite is a phenomenon. There's no doubt about it. In Less than a year, it went from zero to 200 million users across the globe, and it's still spiking. It's still going up. Like I mentioned before, like my son comes home, he's seven years old, he talks about Fortnite, and I've got mates who are 40 who talk about Fortnite. It's a cultural phenomenon. It's a free game, and it has its own in-game currency called V-Bucks within it, and V-Bucks aren't equal to the dollar, and it's, it's kind of got those type of things in it. it might set off alarm bells, but Fortnite's actually an example of freemium game done really well and, and really transparently. You can fully play that game and have a ton of fun without ever spending a cent. You don't come across a wall where you're like, oh, I've got to spend this money or I can't progress or you don't come to a wall where you go, if I don't spend this money, I'm not going to be able to get this gun. I'm not going to be able to compete. Everything is on the table for every single player. Uh, so from that side, they've got it right. The developer of this is Epic Games, by the way. Epic Games has been around in the industry for 30 years. They make one of the most popular middleware engines have been integral to video gaming for a long, long time. They really, really, really know how to make great games. And they've made a great game with Fortnite. Now, what they do is they're very, very transparent about what you get for your money. In this particular game, for those listeners who, who don't understand it or are just curious, they have something called the Battle Pass. And the Battle Pass unlocks cosmetic enhancements to the game. 
They have nothing to do with the gameplay. They allow you to dress your character in fun ways, add extra equipment, do cool dances, basically expressing your personality to the other players in the game. And in order to unlock those, you need to pay. It's not a very big amount. It's like about $10 or $12 gives you 10 weeks worth of unlockables. But then you still play the game to unlock them. So you don't just suddenly just get them. It just says, hey, as you progress, you're going to start unlocking these things. And it motivates people to play more and get more involved in the world. So from that perspective, it's a masterpiece of design because it drip feeds you perfectly into the game. But you don't have to pay to have a great time. I think they've done a really good job with it, Fortnite. And I don't think it needs to be put in the same pedestal as Alarm as some of the other free-to-play things that we've seen before. What it does do, which we haven't spoken about beforehand, is because of the scale of it and how ingrained it already is in the culture, especially the culture of children, is it creates a community environment where people want to fit in. So the psychological part of wanting to spend money may not be because they feel like they're addicted to needing it or they feel like they can't play the game without it. It's because they want to fit in with their friends and be part of the community and stand out, have a person. That's part of the fun. Acknowledging that with your child and going, well, this is them fitting into their group of friends and everything is the same as buying them, say, a cool T-shirt or a new bike or something like that. It's a different approach. It's a different type of psychological investment into a game. How strong and how powerful that is and how that affects people long term, I guess we won't know for a decade or so, but I don't see it being a big one. I think it's one that you can approach with reasonably open arms. You should be more worried about them being in, in an environment with elder people once kids are online they're effectively in a pub (laughs) it's like they're going to be playing a game with three 23 year old guys who are going to swear and talk and say things that 23 year old guys say to each other so that's more alarming than any sort of monetization strategies or uh reaching into your wallet and trying to pinch your money when you're not noticing in that particular game you definitely hear a lot about Fortnite, so i I think it's good to dispel some of the myths and the sort of negative press around it and it's refreshing that you say that you know it is actually done well. Hopefully we'll see other companies see how effective Fortnite's been, how good it's been, and also jump into trying that strategy, being a bit more obvious and transparent and just focusing on just a really fun, authentic gaming experience, uh, first and foremost. Where can people go to learn more about this? So whether it's the psychology that some of these gaming developers are using, even the business models, if that's what you're into, or I guess like tips for parents or, or people who are playing the games and, and don't want to get sucked out of their money. Yeah, look, depending on how deep you want to dive, I mean, like we've got a couple of articles on finder.com that will help people identify and understand, particularly if you're listening and you've got children who you were worried playing too many games, the addiction article got on Finder. There's a whole bunch of examples of how you can identify what it is that's upsetting your child from a gameplay perspective. And then, so then you can understand it, then you can deal with it a lot better, uh, which is quite handy. But if you really want to dive deep into it, find some talks on YouTube from various conferences and stuff. Like the guys that make these games, they get together, they have big conferences and they sit there and they talk about their monetization strategy and they say, this is how we did it. You'll no doubt raise your eyebrows. Cool. Well, we'll chuck a couple of those links to the Finder articles and yeah, maybe some examples of those videos that you can find uh, in the show notes if you're interested. Thank you so much for being on the show, Chris. We've learned a lot about in-app purchases, microtransactions, loot boxes. Anytime, guys. You love talking about games. Anytime.
Thanks for listening, guys. Uh, you can catch us again in a couple of weeks with our next episode. Yes. And uh, be sure to visit finder.com.au slash podcast to check out all the episodes of Pocket Money and the show notes. And if you happen to download this on iTunes slash Apple Podcasts, whatever the cool kids are calling it these days, please leave us a review. Uh, we want your feedback. And also, it really helps us get the word out there and reach new listeners. Thanks, guys. Thanks for listening to Pocket Money from Finder. Head over to finder.com.au slash podcast for the show notes for this episode. The Finder podcast is intended to provide you with tips, tools, and strategies that will help you make better decisions. Although we're licensed and authorized, we don't provide financial advice. So please consider your own situation or get advice before making any decisions based on anything in our show. Thanks for listening.